This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The terminal list exposing Vanderbilt again in the fallout from the July 4th massacre, including the always despicable Eric Swalwell and my final thoughts. It's Wednesday, July 6th, and the show starts right now. Seven Americans murdered in cold blood and dozens more injured at a 4th of July parade of all places. The shooter, a 21-year-old degenerate whose name is not worth repeating. That monster with face and neck tattoos and zero regard for human life perches himself on a rooftop and opens fire on decent, patriotic Americans just trying to celebrate Independence Day in their small suburban community. He reportedly wore women's clothes to conceal his tattoos and identity and after carrying out his heinous act, slithered back home to his mother. Reports suggest he was known to police, though how and why is still unclear. No motive has been announced, but looking at his background, it's pretty clear we are once again dealing with a mentally unstable, angry young man so miserable in his own life he stole the lives of others. He fancied himself an amateur rapper and posted a video to his now-deleted YouTube page that depicts a gunman laying in a pool of blood after being shot by police, among other disturbing images. He has a Spotify page that appears to average almost 17,000 monthly listeners. So once again, there is a good chance someone knew full well this person was unstable or dangerous and didn't say anything. Now, there's several in the media trying their damnedest to paint this freak as a Trump supporter. Of course, piecing together every little crumb they can find to make this not only about the gun, but to try to insinuate he's a conservative or an ultra-mega. What a crock and a waste of time. Instead, we should be asking why so many young males in this country are so freaking angry, violent, and volatile, and unstable. And it's not just the shooters in Columbine, Virginia Tech, Arizona, Newtown, Parkland, Aurora, Charleston, Buffalo, Uvalde, or Highland Park. It's also the thugs, gang members, and lost souls committing drug, gun, rape, assault, and other violent crimes throughout our major cities on a daily basis. Seven people were murdered in Highland Park on Monday, and before that, 220 others were shot and killed over the 4th of July weekend. Ten were killed in Chicago alone. On Sunday night, a five-year-old boy was hit in the shoulder after a bullet was shot into the freaking air in Humboldt Park. Another 10-year-old boy was wounded after bullets were sprayed into his bedroom in the side of his home. What the hell is going on, America? And no, this culture of violence, of lawlessness, of reckless and evil disregard for human life cannot just be passed off as a gun problem. Chicago has some of the strictest gun laws in the nation, for crying out loud. We don't have a gun problem. We have a culture problem. And we can't blame it all on video games or violent shows, music, TV shows, movies, or social media. But perhaps those elements don't help. Let me read you a couple of lines from a popular rap song by rapper Pooh Shiesty, a song that I admittedly have on my Spotify playlist and listen to often. The song is Back in Blood, and you'll hear why. I ain't got nowhere to go. I shot up everywhere they was. Yeah, you ain't know who took that from you. Come get it back in blood. F the ops inside my city, little bro. Put them in the mud. You can't come back to your hood, huh? No, he was dissing on my cousin now. His asshole on that wood, huh? 
Those are the lyrics I can read out loud. And no, I'm not saying this song or the hundreds of others like it are to blame for violence or violent culture, but this kind of popularized filth, filth that I admit I also listen to, probably doesn't help when you've got kids with absentee parents or guardians, no life direction, no faith in a higher being, and a society that downplays the importance of all those things I just mentioned. When you've got no one to teach you a song like that is just a song and not something cool to aspire to, you're much more vulnerable to it. Where are the parents? Where are the grandparents? Where are the communities and community groups that used to and should be stepping in to guide and shape our youth? Where is God? Why has he been driven so far out of popular culture? I know it's taboo in this day and age to offer thoughts and prayers, and maybe it's not enough. But perhaps, just perhaps, a little more thought and a little more prayer is exactly what our country and our young people desperately need. Up next, switching gears with my next guest, former Navy SEAL and New York Times bestselling author of the book series turned Amazon Prime video series, The Terminal List. Jack Carr is next. Investigations are still ongoing into the failures of Operation Odin Sword. Failed missions resulted in the death of 12 Navy SEALs. Lieutenant Commander James Reese, can you outline the details of your mission? They knew we were coming. According to the audio logs, you went dark on comms roughly four mics in. Why? That's not how it went down. You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Headaches, paranoia, memory confusion. That's The Terminal List starring Chris Pratt, but before it was a hot new series streaming on Amazon Prime Video, it was a book series written by my next guest. But his impressive bio didn't start with New York Times bestseller. It started with a 20-year career as an elite Navy SEAL where he led spec ops teams on four continents. So yeah, Jack Carr is a badass, and he joins me now. Jack, it's good to talk to you. I I've been a fan of yours since the book series, and we have a lot of mutual friends in that SEAL community. And I'm so glad and, and excited for your success. And I've watched the terminal list, and I think you know millions of Americans have joined me in that, and it's absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much. And yep, it's the number one uh, streaming series on Amazon uh, over this Fourth of July weekend. So uh, that yeah, could couldn't be more thrilled. And yeah, you gave one of the uh, the first blurbs to this book. Didn't have Chris Pratt on the cover then, but uh, back when it first came out in 2018. So uh, I sincerely appreciate that, and uh, couldn't be more thrilled with how it how it came out. It ended up at the right place with the right actor, the right director, and then the right team in place to make this happen. Which is not easy for, for Hollywood to do, but for those that haven't seen it yet, and I'm sure everybody is getting ready to see it if they haven't seen it already, can you explain the premise of this series and what people can expect? Yeah, I was actually inspired by the church hearings in the 70s. And I thought, hey, what if somebody didn't get the memo? Because what the church hearings really did were expose a lot of overreach by certain agencies of the federal government to include the Central Intelligence Agency and exposed actually some testing of drugs on uh, people in mental institutions, college students, uh, prisoners, and 
people in the military. So I thought, what if something, what if we tried something today and tested it on a group of Navy SEALs? It goes wrong, needs to be covered up. And of course, one person survives and he has to unravel this conspiracy. And it's a conspiracy that uh, in which he is, he's dying. He thinks he is dying. So that frees him up to essentially become an insurgent on US soil and go after the people that uh, put this, uh, essentially giving his, his guys tumors and, and essentially killing him. But deeper than that, it's about bringing the wars from Iraq and Afghanistan home to the front doors of people who have been sending young men and women to their deaths for 20 years. Uh, and that's really, if you go a little bit deeper, what it's about. And uh, James Reese has a skill set, becomes the insurgent on U.S. soil, uses the tactics and techniques of the enemy uh, against those who uh, who put this these tumors essentially into him and his troop. So uh, that's that's the basis. And Chris Pratt knocks it out of the park as Navy SEAL sniper James Reese. And he's known more for more campy roles in the Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy and things like that. But he goes dark in this. And I always knew that he had this in him. I always knew he could do it. But uh, now everybody does because he crushes this role. Nobody better for the part. And this isn't just about the military, and it's not just a psychological thriller, but besides being an author, I mean, you've experienced not this in particular, let's hope not anyway, but you've experienced a lot of the themes in this book and in this series yourself. How much that we read and see is based on true stories you've, you've gone through overseas? Yeah, so I think that's what made this stand out to, to Simon and Schuster, and then what made it resonate with readers as well is that uh, if my character gets ambushed, let's say in Los Angeles, California, I think about Baghdad, 2006, what it was like to be ambushed back there, and I take those feelings and emotions and I apply them to a completely fictional narrative. So even though it's all made up, it feels like it's real because the feelings and emotions come from a real place. Uh, I don't have to ambush, I don't have to find someone who was in an ambush, interview them, and then have those answers kind of filter through other people I've talked to, preconceived notions, biases, that sort of a thing, and then come out in a fictional narrative. Now it comes directly from my heart, directly from my soul, right into the story, right onto that written page. Uh, and I think that's what made it stand out to Simon & Schuster because they see so many of these types of novels every year, but this is the one that they picked. And then resonate with readers as well. And thank goodness, resonate with Chris Pratt. Um, but uh, that's the main thing. And then also this character's on a journey. So he's not exactly the same person in each one of the novels. He's evolving, hopefully, like we all are. And I think people recognize that all of us on this planet are, we're here for a short amount of time. We don't know how much time we have and we're all on this journey. So we're all learning lessons from successes and failures and hopefully applying those going forward as wisdom. And so that's what my character is doing. So he's evolving, he's asking questions as he's moving forward on his journey as well. So I think both those things, the journey and the real emotions and feelings are what makes these, uh, makes these novels stand out. So Jack, you and I have a mutual friend that also stars in this, in this series, Jared Shaw, and it's amazing to me, he really still doesn't have social media, him and I have talked about that before, but he is also a Navy SEAL, even though you know he might not be the first one to admit it in, in mixed company or what have you, he's very proud and all this. But I know, having lived in San Diego, having been around the SEAL community, that when somebody in the SEAL community or the special operations community writes a book or is in a movie or all this, the community itself can go either way. It can be really congratulatory or it can be like, oh no, another SEAL book. So how was this received? Obviously you're not just writing about your experience serving. You're, it's a little bit different. This is obviously a sensationalized book and, and a TV series, but what was the reaction in the teams with, with something like this? 
Yeah, so I think I get a bit of a pass because it is fiction, and I didn't start with a "here's my time in the military" type of a book, or uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, enough about you, let me talk about me type of a book. Uh, no, it's just a just a, one of these books that I read growing up: the Tom Clancy's, Nelson DeMille's, David Morell's, AJ Quinnell, J.C. Pollock, Mark Olden, Stephen Hunter, all these guys in the '80s and '90s who wrote these books with that had protagonists that had main characters with backgrounds typically then in Vietnam as Navy SEALs, as Marine snipers, as Army Special Forces guys, that sort of a thing. So I'm writing a completely fictional narrative, which is a little bit different than most of the other quote unquote SEAL books that are out there. Um, so I think I get a little bit of a pass, but really uh, this show with all the millions of people that are watching it, probably more people are gonna watch the show than have read the books. And people are gonna be able to pick out, oh, little finger on the trigger there, or why not, we'd never do that or this. And the response from the team, from the show with Chris Pratt, from operators, particularly enlisted operators, which was much, what's most important to me, the guys that do kick in the doors and go and do the job, that has been remarkable. Um, and from from Delta to development group to the SEAL teams to Army Special Forces, so many people have reached out uh, and just with words of encouragement and saying that they really liked it. Um, so that to me uh, means means the most because we didn't make it for LA and New York film critics. Uh, really, we made it for that enlisted operator that has been doing the job for so long that uh, just wants to sit on the couch, watch a good show and not have to pick out every little thing that we did wrong. Right. Uh, I'm sure there's a couple because, you know, if you're in a dark tunnel complex, like in the beginning and you're on night vision, uh, we can't just show a dark screen uh, and right. have people watch a dark screen for 20 minutes. I mean, you have to have some light and you know we took the suppressors off the the, the the rifles so that you could have some muzzle flash and all that sort of a thing so there's a couple of hollywood pieces in there um but uh for the for the most part we went above and beyond to keep it grounded in the foundation of the novels and also reality the modern realities of combat so i have to ask you too i'm glad you brought up hollywood because there's been a lot of success not only for the terminal list but for top gun other military shows and movies especially right now i think americans are really yearning for that they want to celebrate their country they want to celebrate those that serve their country but did you get any pushback or anything from the hollywood group it's obviously you know somewhat of a, a violent series and to be on amazon prime video would they let you do what you needed to do to get it done yeah, so I'm so glad this ended up at Amazon, Amazon Prime, um, because yeah, they were a little nervous about a few things in there, some of the violence, and in the lead up to uh, to this production, when I announced that hey, we're, we're starting to film and that sort of a thing, people could reach out on social media, and I try to be very active on there just to thank people for taking a risk on me as a as a new author. But they also tell you things, uh, <laughs> unsolicited advice on social media, and uh, a lot of those comments were about they are never going to allow X, Y, or Z. And one of them is a very violent gutting scene. Uh, there's a couple other things that people have mentioned. Uh, Amazon will never allow this. Hollywood would never allow this. And you know they're kind of right in that uh, maybe some senior executives were a bit nervous, but every time they came down on uh, on our side. And uh, so, I, so they took a risk. They took a big risk. There's some things that happen in this series that are just not done on television. And uh, they allowed us to do it. So they allowed us to make something different. Uh, and they took these risks with us. So uh, now they're seeing those those payoff. And one of the scenes they were nervous about actually is uh, this one right here, which is now on like every billboard in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, so there's a, there's a gutting scene there with a Winkler tomahawk and uh, and people are loving it. Well, people do love violence and gore, but this has a message. It's deeper than that. The last thing I want to ask you, though, is there's been a lot of reports. The military is suffering right now from recruitment problems. And I think movies like Top Gun, certainly this series, are going to help that. But what do you think it is? Why are people not signing up to serve quite like they used to? And how do we change that? 
it's tough because I get that question too. And I have kids age 16, 14, and 11. And it's tough when I think, uh, hey, would I encourage them if they want to join the military? Uh, would I want to, them to serve this uh, this country with the direction that we're headed? So I understand the questions where it's not so uh, so simple as, hey, I want to serve my country. I want to step up. I want to test myself, um, those sorts of things. It's uh, it's really looking at where we're headed as a nation and then asking the question, do I trust those the elected representatives uh, and do I trust the military, uh, both of those. And it's tough. It's tough to answer that question. Uh, and some people will serve regardless because of for, for love of country um, and maybe hoping things will change. Uh, but I completely understand why people would be reluctant to join the military today, seeing the direction of the country. So that's why I appreciate that the, that you are out there fighting every day for the principles upon which this nation was founded. Uh, it is so important because if you're not out there, uh, then most more people are going to say, no, you know, I'm not going to serve this country. I don't trust those in these leadership positions in the military, and I don't trust these elected representatives. Um, they're they're in there for another reason. And uh, I mean, all you have to do is look at, uh, you know, what their salaries are and when they enter, enter right. politics and then how much they've made during that time. I guess they're just savvy investors. Maybe that's <laughs> yeah. it. Maybe people that's, who are that's called Nancy, to Nancy serve Pelosi. in politics yep. also just yep. happen to be very savvy investors. But uh, I'm a bit skeptical of that. Yeah, well, listen, it's a fantastic series. You did such an amazing job with it. Amazing success you've had with the book series and then transitioning it to Amazon. And I'm watching. I love it. Everybody in this room is watching it. They all love it. So we're going to continue watching. Please write more books. Do more series because we need more of you in Hollywood. And maybe with more people like you in Hollywood, we can change it around and it won't be woke anymore and we can actually create things that are worth watching. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate all the support. It means the world. Thanks so much. And uh, make sure you send a message to Jared Shaw for me. Tell him I'm watching him and he needs to get an Instagram or a Twitter or something because he's going to have so many fans and so many ladies probably sliding into his DM. So he needs to get that working. <laughs> I'll let him know right now. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Jack. All right. Still ahead. Last week, we exposed Vanderbilt Hospital for denying a transplant to a six-month-old baby due to his vaccination status. And there's more exposing to be done. Turns out Vanderbilt not only sponsors drag shows for all ages, but quietly implemented a doctorate which allows children as young as 13 to receive information on gender transition without parental knowledge or consent. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's called the Mature Minor Doctrine, and it was adopted in 2021 by none other than our local and world-renowned Vanderbilt Hospital right here in Nashville, Tennessee. The doctrine and its accompanying consent form allow kids as young as 13 to receive information and even private one-on-one -on -one appointments with doctors who practice gender transition. Here to break it all down is Landon Starbuck, founder of FreedomForever.us. All right, so we have to say we did reach out to Vanderbilt when this all came out because just like the story last week with six-month-old August and denying the heart transplant, we have to give Vanderbilt an opportunity to respond. They did not respond to us. 
So we're just going with what these parents are, are telling you because it's well documented. Tell me what's going on here. Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for covering this. This is really important because unfortunately, so many families feel like they can't have a voice. They can't push back or risk, you know, this health care being denied to their children. And so I feel like it's a, a responsibility to speak up when I say I advocate for children, no matter the, you know, kind of grooming or the kind of coercion and fraud involved. It's important to speak up about cases like this. And um, in the case of Vanderbilt, what they're doing is a essentially asking children, um, this is what parents are telling us, to sign a uh, you know, permission slip uh, for parents to be able to either be involved in the medical decision-making process or not, which brings us to consent. Can children consent? Because Vanderbilt, according to these evidence, these pictures that we have, and these multiple stories from parents reaching out, that is what they're maintaining. So that's 13 years old. So let's go into this. They're able to, at 13 years old, say, I want to have appointments. I want to learn about gender transition, all these things. And my parents don't need to consent to it. And my parents don't even need to know about it. Is that what we're dealing with? Well, unfortunately, due to the covert you know, way that they're handling all of this and not being transparent, not only with parents, but the public. And as we see with denying that this is even happening, when we have evidence that this is happening, we don't know the extent of this. So we have to put pieces together, right? We know that they work. Uh, locally with pride events, with the LGBT social political movements to promote their transgender services and clinics to children. And then on the other hand, we have these signs up saying, hey, do you need a private, you know, uh, for sensitive exams, um, chaperone? Well, what's wrong with the parents being the chaperone? Why is that happening? And then we also have in pediatric offices another image saying that, you know, if your child turns 13, you are going to be locked out of that um, online portal. So why are these things happening? Parents are having to connect the dots on their own. And without conversation, conversations like this, people will not know what's going on. When a 13-year-old as well, they're heavily influenced by pop culture. They're heavily influenced by those in their life, maybe not their parents, but their administrators, those that they see on social media, on TV. We know that the, the gender transition and all of this has really been popularized by the mainstream media, by pop culture, all of these things, so that a 13-year-old can go and get information on something without their parent knowing. You're right, it brings up a lot on parental consent, but also, are these kids really old enough to know what they want to do, or are they old enough to know they're being influenced or indoctrinated, I think that's really at the core of this issue here. Absolutely. And at the most vulnerable time, you know, we all remember being 13 when your hormones are high and now they're being attacked, you know, their identities are being attacked. They don't know who they are. And they're finding these identities and these superficial, you know, LGBTQ identities being pushed on them. And then you have a mega health corporation, Vanderbilt Health, partnering and sponsoring the drag show in local Franklin that just happened. You know, this is, these are alarming questions. This is coercion. These are coercing children, promoting these ideas to children under the umbrella of medical and health care. This is really dangerous. And then the parents are kept out of it. So you're promoting it to young people and then you're saying, parents, you're no longer allowed to really know what's going on here. What are the parents coming to you? What are they telling you? Well, the first, first and foremost, I'm alarmed that they're scared. They're scared to speak out, and advocates like me have to speak out for them because they're afraid that their kids are going to be denied health care if they push back, if they say, hey, I'm not comfortable with this. I don't want my children being able to consent. They're not able to consent. So in some cases, they have life-threatening um, conditions where they, they need this endo care at the endo clinic, which is also the um, affiliated with the transgender yeah, drugs and all those things. So we're talking about kids being denied life-saving health 
healthcare, if parents assert their rights, if parents push back, that is what they're scared of happening. And, and you have to question, if is that really healthcare? If a system is using force, fraud, and coercion to coerce people into certain medical decisions, is that truly a free healthcare system in, in the best interest of the child? And that's not even to mention the life-altering, damaging, sometimes irreversible effects of these drugs that they're experimenting on children with. I think that's where most people are alarmed. Now listen, I think adults, whatever the adults want to do with their body, whatever. You know, this is not an anti-LGBTQ thing. This is not an anti-trans thing. This is saying, should children be exposed to this? Should children have this, this gender dysmorphia, all, all these things, and be pushed upon them and almost seem like it's in vogue, it's cool, it's hip? To, to not know your gender, or to question your gender. And like you said, a lot of these kids might not be even having these feelings, but they're being told that they should have these feelings or that they should consider having these feelings. And then we've already got an issue right now with, with parents that you know, want to be involved, not being able to be involved. But then what about the kids whose parents don't want to be involved or maybe they're not quite as active? Those kids are even more vulnerable. And those are the, the parents or the guardians that might not even be aware of what's going on. That's right. And those are the questions that have to be answered. And that's why a level of transparency is really needed here. And really the big problem too is this affirmative care model, meaning that you can only seek care for your children that is affirmative, meaning they affirm only the, the gender or identity, whatever that is at any given time of day of the child. So what you're saying is now mental health care is becoming an affirmative only top-down model in which now there's underground hush-hush uh, markets for therapists that will actually help families navigate these treacherous waters of gender dysmorphia and identity, often you know induced by this rapid onset from school. So kids that previously didn't have these rapid onset gender dysmorphic ideas are being presented with it at school, coming home, saying, mom, I want to go talk to somebody, I need help. And parents are afraid to get their kids mental health care because the only health care available is this affirmative health care model. This is coercive health care with a certain outcome in mind. I think it's important to, to break that down so people really understand. So a kid goes to school, they're telling them you can be a he, she, they, them, it, whatever. And then those kids and their parents, they say, listen, I want to receive counseling on this. But the only counseling they can receive is someone that tells them, yes, maybe you are a him, hit, it, they, them, there, all those things. They can't receive any kind of counseling that says, hey, maybe this is not correct or, or maybe what you're being presented with at school isn't correct. Let's, let's try to sort through this. Maybe you are your actual biological gender. That's not being presented to them at all. That's left out of the conversation. According to when you look at to affirmative care, the gold standard now, I mean, if you look at from the top down to these medical conglomerates that dictate the policies down to Vanderbilt Health and all the other hospitals across the country. Um, my nonprofit also exposed what's happening at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and they were promoting these LGBTQ agendas. And I say agendas because they are coercing children into these certain identities and medicalizing it. And that is not giving true informed consent not to the families and not to the children who cannot consent. So Vanderbilt, same with the story last week, they're not confirming, but they're not denying. They just didn't get back to us with a statement on this. But you've got the parents coming to you. So that's what we're going off of is the parents that have come to you and said, hey, listen, this is what's going on. But I wonder what can be done at the state level, because we know in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has been very active, very vocal, pushing back against things like this. Our governor is a Republican governor, but Governor Lee 
Is he going to step in? Is he going to do anything? Can he do anything? What's your take on and him and, and his ability to do more to prevent some of this? Well, um, I did speak with his office, and it gave them the opportunity to speak with the mother, which they did. Um, so they've heard firsthand what she experienced. Um, and I hope that they take action. You know, we need anti-grooming laws, and we need very specific language. You know, bills that don't have teeth that are just designed to appease everyone, they don't work. And we need that specific language, because right now, current state law actually says if it's under the guise of health care or even education, that these are protected categories. And that's the same reason we saw the porn in schools being still allowed in the state of Tennessee. Right. So we have a lot of work to do. Our governor has a lot of work to do, too, because he's not doing enough. And he's got an R behind his name, but sometimes I question it. That's for another day and another segment. But this is not just talking about the, the gender dysmorphia and then the trans issues. This also goes back to COVID and the COVID vaccine, because back during the days of pushing this vaccine, there was also a lot of discussion in the state of Tennessee around vaccines and if kids needed to get their parents' consent when they were younger to go in and get the vaccine without their parents' knowledge. This is not just about this. This is a parental consent issue that's a problem for the state of Tennessee and a lot of other states like ours. 100%. You know, we're seeing this. You know, when, when they say that they can consent to medical procedures, it's not just abortions and the abortion pill and, you know, all of these gender uh, transitioning hormones and medical procedures. We're talking about vaccines that have risks. And where there's risk, there needs to be choice and there needs to be parents involved. What are parents supposed to do if their kid has a bad side effect or a reaction and they have no idea what's going along? You know, who's, who's accountable? You know, we have a lot of people that jump on our feeds, you know, attacking us, saying, you guys are anti this. No, we're not anti anything, but we would like to know who's going to be responsible because the parents are the ones responsible for these right. ramifications, not the doctors, not the hospital, not any of these people pushing this ide ideology and these outcomes. So Vanderbilt, they, again, are, they're not confirming, they're not denying, but they're not coming out and saying we're proud of this mature minor doctorate and consent form. That they did not give us when we called and we did call and ask them about that. So what do you think about Vanderbilt's response to all of this? Um, I mean, I, I would expect that from them. They have, a, I'm sure they haven't had a, a PR meeting t time to do that yet, but um, dealing with them previously with baby August's case, mm -hmm. uh, I think that this is par for the course, but I think their signage speaks for themselves. And I'm wondering if they've recently taken it down or maybe since this interview post, if they'll take that signage down. The signage says everything. Parents are not stupid. We're not going to be gaslit. The signage is up in their pediatric offices telling them that when your child turns 13, you're locked out of the portal. When you're, you know, that you can have a private uh, chaperone that is not a parent to help your child to sensitive medical procedures for all children coming in to get their wellness visits to see on the door. They're not hiding this. They're just hiding it in the public eye from getting out to people. They're wondering how they're going to respond to it. But we're going to hold them accountable because if, if that, that sign was in the wrong place and there was just some just activist that put it out there, then Vanderbilt still needs to be held accountable for that, and they need to answer to us about it. So we hope to hear a reaction or response to them. But keep us updated. Keep us updated on Baby August. There's a lot of things going on right here in the, t in the state of Tennessee and elsewhere, but uh, the parents are sure happy to have an advocate like you and Robbie to be voicing a lot of this because a lot of them don't have the platforms and they don't have the guts or the willingness to come out and put themselves on the line. So we thank you for doing it and bringing us all the information as well. Thank you so much. All right, up next, just when you thought Congressman alleged interview tooting bandit and Chinese spy enthusiast, Eric Swalwell couldn't go any lower. Well, he did. And I have some final thoughts. That's next.
Congressman Eric Swalwell doesn't have tact, class, or self-awareness, but he does have the audacity to out-a-hole himself with each passing week. This episode of the Swalwell Saga features the California congressman comparing his fellow congresswoman Lauren Boebert to the Highland Park mass shooter. Yeah, it's time for final thoughts. The country is still reeling from the tragedy in Highland Park, Illinois, wherein seven people lost their lives, dozens were injured, and one little boy was left an orphan, all while attempting to celebrate our great nation and its independence. And yes, no doubt one of the things that makes our nation great is the First Amendment, free speech and expression. But sadly, some people abuse that sacred right and use it to be an insensitive jackass. In case you haven't figured it out yet, that person is Congressman Eric Swalwell. Here he is comparing Congresswoman Lauren Boebert to the shooter who sniped seven people from a rooftop during the 4th of July parade in Highland Park on Monday. Of all the disgusting ways to politicize a tragedy, divide the nation, and offer up some partisan BS, this has to be the worst I've seen, certainly from an elected representative. To suggest that law-abiding and responsible gun owner and United States Representative Lauren Boebert is akin to or inspired the parade shooter is on a scum level of its own, and that's not a compliment, though Eric Swalwell is so distasteful he probably will take it as one. Congresswoman Boebert, a friend of this show, responded to Slimeball Swalwell saying, quote, Eric Swalwell isn't a fan of our constitutional rights and is desperate to distract from his repeated political failures. But the only straight line that needs to be drawn is from Eric Swalwell to Fang Fang to the Chinese Communist Party. She is, of course, referring to Swalwell's alleged yet documented relationship with Chinese spy Fang Fang. When it comes to threats to national security, Swalwell could write a book. This kind of shock jock behavior is typical for Swalwell. He's a failed presidential candidate, and besides being famous for Fang Fang and allegedly farting on national TV during an interview, he hasn't accomplished much. His Twitter fingers are active, though. Just a couple of weeks ago, he typed out this little nugget of BS. It's clear Eric is thirsty for attention and relevance, but to compare a congresswoman to a mass shooter is lower than low. California's 15th district must be so proud. And those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.